0: Good morning, class. This is our the least of these class. It is Sunday morning, October 27th. Our study this morning is uh, is a lengthy handout in front of you. It's called the Divine Structure of Relationships. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the rain. It reminds us of your faithfulness to give us the earth for food, for water. Your kindness reminds us of being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that cleanses our conscience from all sin. It reminds us of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And we do ask you, Holy Spirit, our teacher, to use this material to draw us into deeper relationship with our God and with one another. Challenge, shape, help the way we think about relationships. That it was always be biblical and therefore liberating to us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. What a joy to be reunited with them. In Jesus' name, Amen. How does God structure our relationship with Himself and with others? Sooner or later, you ask yourself that question. You begin to get to know God. You realize you're in, inescapably, in relationship with other people. What should the relationship look like? So what's my relationship with God, how does God structure that, what's my relationship with others look like within the church, in my family, and particularly with people I don't necessarily like, agree with, or even look like. That's sort of the ultimate destination of our class. What do our relationships with other people look like, how do we bring healing and reconciliation where there's been deep fracture? in relationships, culturally, socially, or maybe even personally. And what I want to uh, posit with you uh, in the initial thesis is God structures both of these relationships in essentially the same way, according to the principle of solidarity. That means what solidarity means, what's true of one is true of all. And the Bible phrase that captures that is, as I am, So, or uh, as I, so you. So with respect to your own identity as a believer in Christ, Jesus says, as I am, so are you. We'll tease out what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. And with respect to your ethics, the the essence of the, the structure of our relationships, God says, as I've treated you, so you treat others. So there's an organic connection between the way God calls us to relate to him and we relate to others. And I say that this is the inexorable result of the atonement. That's a 50-cent word that means unchangeable, unbreakable result of the at one what? How does the Bible speak of salvation? You're now one with God. The atonement, Christ's work on the cross, makes us one right with God. Someone read for us the passage from John 17, uh, verse 21 and following, that I think illustrates this to some degree. It's Jesus' prayer, as you all know.
1: Also may be enough, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as
2: you loved me.
0: So thank you, Melissa. There's a ton we could say about this, but notice Jesus is appealing to the oneness he has with his Father. And by virtue of our salvation, God has a oneness with us. So Jesus says the oneness that's in us, we share and have that oneness in them. Wow. And what's at stake, according to Jesus? The watching world sees this oneness and draws what conclusion? Jesus was sent into the world. The Father loves Jesus. There's a lot at stake in the way believers demonstrate Christian unity and oneness. Live out the oneness God has with each of us and all of us that God has in himself. So that's why, as I continue to uh, say here, apart from the worship only God is due, we owe both God and others comparatively the same things. You're called to respect God, love God, honor God, serve God. You're called to respect others, love others, serve others, honor others. Same words used for both relationships. Obviously, God is supreme in that. God is first. You never do that to others at the expense of God. But the structure is essentially the same. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another, showing honor, you know, the scripture exhorts us to serve, bless, etc. Okay. So now let's begin to tease out different places the Bible shows us we have this principle of solidarity teased out. The first solidarity and salvation. We're going to compare the fact that we are born physically in solidarity with Adam. We're born in union with Adam, who's a representative of the human race. And we'll get and show that that we are born spiritually in solidarity with Jesus Christ. We want to compare these two things. So you're born, every baby born into this world is born in union with Adam. They have an endemic nature. They're guilty of Adam's sin. They're under Adam as Failed covenant head. And they owe God, as Adam did what? They owe God perfect obedience. The covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, when God said to Adam, Obey me and you'll live forever, that's what we call the covenant of works. Every human being born into this world is under the obligation of the covenant of works. They owe God perfect obedience. That's why in Romans 6, when Paul says we're no longer under law but under grace, he's really referring there to the fact that if you're in Christ, you're no longer in solidarity with Adam, you're in solidarity with Jesus Christ. You're not bound by the covenant of works on, because Jesus, the second Adam, fulfilled it, but I get ahead of myself. So somebody read the next part that we how we were created to reflect the image of God on earth and the two
3: verses that are there. <clears throat>
0: Yes, please, thank you.
4: are those who are the dust is the of heaven are who are
3: Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust
0: we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven.: Thank you. So there's uh your created purpose to reflect on earth, morally, back to God the glory of his righteousness. We were created not only to reflect the image of God on earth, we were created to enjoy God's presence and his riches. Yet ironically, we sinned and died in Adam. Somebody read the verses under that portion from Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15.
2: Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through death through sin, and so death spread to all men through all sin. For by a man came death, by a man has also come to the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be
0: made alive. Okay. Thanks, Nate. So, in solidarity with Adam, what happens? We die. We're born spiritually dead. No appetite for God, no interest in God no inclination in us spiritually to move towards God. We have as much interest in God as a physically dead person has interest in food. In fact, it's worse than that. Our hearts are left in a position of creating false gods that will ever lead us away from God. Right? We're not just separated from God. We have an innate Hostility towards the living God that we actually hide from ourselves. So the gospel promises to restore us not only to the image, but it promises to restore us to the presence of God and the riches of God. So for example, somebody read for us these four verses.
3: You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if children, their are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him.
0: Push pause there, Brock, just for a second. So David's saying in Psalm 16, is that a description of paradise before the fall in your presence, fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forever? Is that paradise before the fall? Sure. Do we have this right now? Only in part. This is what we ultimately look forward to. How is how is the presence of God depicted in the Scripture in glory in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth? Fullness of joy, pleasures forever. That's that's what we're getting back to. And what's the principal difference between what Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall, and we will have in paradise in glory? What's the principal difference? We will not be able. Not able to forfeit it. There would be no possibility of sin entering in and choosing to forfeit it all. No sin. We'll enjoy it forever without the risk. There will be no probationary period, as it were. And notice Romans 8, Paul says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. So whatever Christ inherits, what? You do too. You're filthy, thinking rich, believer. <laughs> I don't think we think about that a lot. We're co-heirs with Jesus by virtue of what doctrine? Union with Christ. Our faith unites us to Christ. What's true of him is true of us. If he's going to own and rule the whole world, we're going to do it with him. This we'll tease out in just a second. You may continue. Thank you.
3: Ephesians 3, 18. uh, May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Revelation, you want to come in? Okay. <laughs> okay. Revelation 22, 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay,
0: Adam and Eve were created to reign over the earth. They lived in the glorious light of the presence of God. And, looking at the verse above it, this is where you have to say Christianity seems to promise too much. Filled with the fullness of God? Really? Yes, really. Was Christ filled with the fullness of God? Are those in union with Christ who expect in measure the same? What do we expect in our Christian lives? Way too little. And notice this is done together. strained to comprehend with all the saints. And this is, beloved, why you come to Sunday school. You, You understand this. You want to comprehend with all the saints the unsearchable riches of the love of Christ. So we're born spiritually, physically, in solidarity with Adam were born spiritually in solidarity with Christ, the representative head of God's chosen race. Adam is chosen to represent the human race in the garden. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is chosen to represent God's chosen race. He represents those whom he is going to save, and his saving work is efficacious for them and them only. Somebody read for us then um, this wonderful uh, condensed passage from Ephesians 2, 5.
5: Even when we were dead in in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus.
3: Thank you. So
0: Paul wants you to appreciate the grace of God and it's not just we're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. It's at least this much. We're dead in sin with what sort of appetite for God? None. How responsible we are to God? Dead at the bottom of the lake. Remember the lake illustration from a long time ago? So here we are. And Paul uses three uh, verbs in the Greek that all have the prefix "sun," which means "with." He says, what's the first one? We're dead, and what does God do? He made us alive alive together with Christ. You're regenerated in union with Christ. He then what? He made you alive. What's the next one? He raised raised us up together with Christ, and then finally seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. So in a very real sense, right now, you are at the throne of God in union with Christ. Looks like we're in College Park, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> it sure looks like it. We are physically. But spirit's Pat. Just a question. We often don't think of the soul as being that piece
1: of us. Is we are hurt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the soul. Yeah. But this is, this is, part, this is part of the mystery. And uh, even even the saints who've gone before us somehow entering into from heaven the worship that we're going to offer God a little later. Jesus among us by His Spirit. Okay, so and that's beloved, that's sovereign grace. He made you alive when you were what dead. Dead people don't make that. So look, the only way we are saved is God moves on us first, regenerates us, gives us a new heart enables us to believe and repent. Okay? That's that's what we believe about election, sovereign grace, predestination, all that good stuff. We receive redemption in solidarity with Christ in his death and resurrection. Somebody read those three verses for us.
1: For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you.
0: Thank you. Do you know that Galatians two twenty was the verse you used when you joined Trinity? Years ago, yeah. When when we joined the church you would be introduced and then you'd have a verse read. What's that? Same yeah. So I digress, sorry. Paul's reasoning in Romans 5 is he wants you to know you're no longer slave to sin. Sin has no dominion over you. All by virtue of union with Christ. The moment you trust Christ, what's true of Christ is true of you. Christ died a death to sin on the cross and he was raised a new life to live forever. I've died and I've been raised with Christ. If it's true of Christ, it's true of you.
4: Would you see now on the cross when Christ gave up the ghost, the spirit went back to the Father. Yes.
1: And in our sense, now, when we are born again, our spirit and soul is revived in the
0: blood of God. Yes. When we physically do the death, our spirit and soul goes immediately to the presence of God. Yes. Yes, exactly. So we'll experience the final realization of what is true in this paradigm already. We've been raised up and seated with Christ. Right. Well, physical death is simply that, hum, that, that final realization of that manifestation of that. It's look, it's mysterious, you know. But, Nate,
2: I, I think the confusion sometimes comes with understanding how we're united in His death, because it's, under, it's easy to understand how we'll be united with Him when we were raised. And Paul talks about this uh, as having. Happened in the past tense. So he's not talking about his physical death, but when he's gonna die, that's the same to being united to Christ's death. So I think that I might be able to go into that a little bit more. What it means to be united with Christ in his death. Okay.
0: It means that when Jesus came to this earth, he entered a realm where sin had dominion over human beings because of the fall. he, he came into that realm. He never sinned. The death he died, was he's finished with that realm. That's why I personally don't believe on a thousand-year reign of Jesus coming back to the earth, that's, uh, the millennial reign of Jesus. I don't believe that on the strength of this text and others. Jesus isn't coming back to the place where sin has dominion. He's through with it. Okay? He's been raised out of it, done. All that's going to be left now is we're going to him. And when he comes down, this rain is going to be destroyed. We're going to have paradise on earth, the bride coming down. So Nate is saying in the physical death of Jesus, he died to sin, not that he ever sinned, but he bore our sin on the cross. He entered a new realm, uh, the realm of everlasting life. And the moment we believe in Christ, the person we were in solidarity with Adam is dead. We're a new person still living in this realm, but sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not slaves to sin. We don't have to sin. That's why Paul says, don't go on presenting your mortal bodies to sin that you should obey. It's lust." Romans 6.11. Actually, the first imperative in the book of Romans is consider yourselves dead to sin. It's the way you're supposed to think about yourself. Consider yourself dead to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin because of union with Christ. And then don't let let, uh, sin have mastery over you. Is that what you wanted me to tease out? You want to say more?
2: I think that's helpful. I think uh, this is also one of these things where we've we've been crucified with Christ, yet we also have an ongoing part of crucifying our sins and our passions on a daily basis. Yes. So it's, you know, people can look at this and say, what's this one time event that happened? There's a one time event, but there's also ongoing uh, crucifying of our own sin daily.
0: Good. So the Pearson's used to say, we have vivification, we're born anew <clears throat> in Christ, and on once, an ongoing mortification, our daily battle with indwelling sins. Sin wants to rule, don't let it reign. That's the daily battle. Christians are those who fight sin daily and die fighting, assured that the victory is there because of Jesus. Pat?
3: Yes. To
1: not be victims of sin,
0: and so easily So we really do need the Yes, Amen. And so Pat is telling us that this battle for sin is largely cognitive. It's located in what you're telling yourself, what you believe. So what are your desires? Your desires are things that you think are going to make you happy. It's ultimately a cognition. Um, so be re- transformed in the renewal of your mind Paul gets into that then in uh, Ephesians 4 think of the beginning of Colossians 3 if you've been raised up with Christ keep seeking the things above where Christ is at the right hand of God set your mind on the things above it's the only hope I have for getting my mind and my focus off the things that are below that's a whole other lesson and that's a good point to make okay
4: yes
5: Um, With the two that you've listed there, would that be analogous to justification and sanctification? Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, we're justified once. It's punctiliar. We're sanctified progressively in an ongoing sense. Okay. Although, don't mean to confuse you, but the Bible does use sanctification in a one-time and an ongoing. It's called it's called definitive sanctification. So the moment right, you're born in solidarity with Adam. God rescues you and causes you to be born again. You're immediately united by your faith to Jesus Christ. That process of going from death to life, blindness to sight, um, um, hopelessness to hope, all the you know, light to darkness, darkness to light. That's called definitive sanctification. You're set apart one time. So in Colossians, Paul tells the Colossians, excuse me, Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians. You were sanctified. What, he, what he's referring to is you were born again and set apart for his youth. But we normally use it as this progressive, I'll allude to it in my sermon, actually, sanctification. So what
5: would the difference be between justification and definitive sanctification?
3: They happen at
0: the same time. Okay. So here I am dead in sin, God effectually calls me, and he uses the gospel to awaken in me a need for Jesus, and the Holy Spirit creates in my heart Faith and repentance—they always go together. And so, the moment I believe, the moment I—God regenerate regeneration always precedes faith. That's a mystery. Jesus said to Nicodemus, "Don't know when it happened. It's like the wind—you can see the effects, but you know, it's kind of mysterious." The moment you believe the gospel, you are uh, justified and set apart in solidarity with Jesus. You're no longer in solidarity with Adam. Thank you. Yes. So Romans 6 says, stop acting like you're in solidarity with Adam. You're not. Good question. Okay? We receive, bottom of the page 2, we have received perfect righteousness in solidarity with Christ. Somebody read uh, these two verses.
6: For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count, count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his suffering. Becoming like him in his death, that by any
0: means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Dory. Paul's goal in life is to be raised from the dead. So this is what we call the great exchange. This is actually more on justification. The great exchange. What is your life morally before God? F minus. What's Christ's life morally in his 33 years until he breathes his last? A plus. What do you need to get into heaven? A plus. There's not, a, not an ounce of sin is going to be in the presence of God. None. So the million dollar question is, who is competent, who's worthy, who's able to remove all of your sin from you and credit you, the Greek logizomai, with this perfect righteousness? Only Jesus. Christianity is the only religion of the substitute. So on the cross, Jesus says, Give me your F, I'll be crucified under it. God has to punish sin. In in this world, sin inexorably attracts God's judgment. Wherever sin is, it will be judged. Christ was judged on the cross for your sin, and he exchanges that for his perfect righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. So you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. That's why in the sermon, I'm going to talk about Jesus said, whoever has this life, John 4, will never thirst again. Right. Aren't we thirsty spiritually as people in our sanctification? Sure. But when you understand the gospel, you go, That's all I need. I, I don't thirst for any more than the righteousness of Jesus or the cross of Jesus. You, right. When you've got the cross, you don't never thirst for more. You don't want any more. You know that's it. That's all you need. That's what Jesus means when he says you'll never thirst again. Now you don't have to go to the sermon. <laughs> Actually, I have a little bit more to say about it than that. Okay, good. So this is the great exchange. Jesus takes your sin, you get his righteousness. That's why I don't believe in a place called purgatory. How could there be? A place of purging? No, all my sin is either on the body of Jesus or it isn't. I either have all the righteousness of Jesus credited to me or none of it. The gospel's good news. It's true liberty, it's freedom, it's, oh, You want to do backwards somersaults, don't you? And that's
1: also the part of the gospel that is often left off. You know, and maybe, I mean, I'll just reflect back on teaching, you know, second graders and fifth graders and seventh graders, oftentimes they think the gospel is just Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And they don't seem to have that understanding of the righteousness received in that great exchange. Good. So that was, you know, always make sure you add that, you know, when you're sharing the gospel, you've got to share that part of it too.
0: Good. Yes. Because a lot of, let me just elaborate on that, a lot of people know and they understand Jesus died for my sins and get cleansed, but then they think, I have to do my part. And the answer to your part is, really, what was lacking in the perfect righteousness of Jesus that you could add to that? Well, what do you want to add to that? There's no extra credit questions. <laughs> You can't add anything to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It is finished. Those were Jesus' words on the cross. It was a commercial term, to, to, you know this, to tell us die, to, to, to tell, to us die, and it meant that debt is paid, paid in full. You know nothing, nothing left to do. All right, good. Never get tired of the gospel, do we? So we receive the blessings of salvation in solidarity with Christ. Somebody read this portion. according to the riches of his grace. Thank you. Do you see the repetition? In Christ, in him, chosen in Christ, everything we have is through Christ and in union with Christ, solidarity with Christ. We suffer in solidarity with Christ. Do, do we need to read this portion? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. I think you know this. Can we, is it okay to move through this section in the interest of time? We suffer in solidarity with Christ. You'll take my word for it that these scripture verses say that. We bear fruit in solidarity with Christ. Let's let's read those two, lest we ever boast about anything good we do for the Lord. (laughs) Who's got John 15 and 1 Corinthians 15?
6: Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. First Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me.
0: Thanks, Radu. So look at the end of John, the John 15 passage. You should start every day by saying what? Start every day by saying what?
1: Apart from me, I can do
0: nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And where will that drive you? If that's true, what should that drive you to do, according to the verse? Abide in Jesus. Abide in Je- Live in a close relationship. Draw from the vine, life, strength, the power of the Spirit. Pray the graces, pray the fruit of the Spirit into you. You're asking to be filled with the Spirit. I can do nothing apart from you. At the end of the day, anything good happen in your life? What should you do?
1: Praise
0: God. Thank you. Praise God. That In spite of me, you did good things. And here Paul walks this... Razor-fine line in this 1 Corinthians 15 passage. He, he tells the truth. I, I, although I'm the last apostle, I busted my butt more than any of them. But, but, it was the grace of God. I did it, but it was the grace of God. It's this razor-fine line. You, you're not supposed to say, I'm terrible, I'm a woman. No. God has equipped you. God's given you a spirit. God's called you. Fulfill that calling with confidence. And then immediately give all the glory to God. His grace in me.
4: Stay, if you boast boast of the glory.
0: That's right. That's a, that's a, all all good things come from his hand. It, it also
1: shit put us in the words that we say in terms of not only to the Lord, but to each other, that we going bless people, you yeah, know, with the words that we say to
4: uh, Ju yeah. and you know, the things that glorify God about words.
0: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, the way we speak to each other revealing our absolute need and dependence upon Christ. Good point. We're the light of the world in solidarity with Christ. Take, take for granted that that's what these verses show. Next one. We're glorified in solidarity with Christ. And this is probably an important passage to read. Somebody read these verses for us.
1: Ephesians 2.7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.40. When Christ who is <coughs> appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes of that day to be glorified in his things and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you with believe. First John for two, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be have not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be
0: like him, because we shall see him as he is. Thank you. Notice in Second Thessalonians 1, he'll be glorified in his saints. Because we're going to look like him. There will be, as it were, indistinguishable moral glory between us and our risen. Bodies is in state, and Jesus, as it were. The Ephesians 2 passage, in the coming ages, the whole creation will marvel and say, look at what the grace of God did in that person, because they'll be in union with Christ. Next one is, we are confident in the day of judgment in solidarity with Christ. This is important to read since we're very familiar with our sin. Who would read uh, these two verses? There is therefore now no condemnation,
6: no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First John 4:17. But by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is of all; he is so also our way. As he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love.
0: Man, there's like six sermons in that First John passage, aren't there? Wow! So tell me, based on Romans 8:1, why you should not fear condemnation on the day of judgment. Because you're in Christ. And what is Christ like right now? He is a glorified, spotless Son of God. If you're in union with Him by faith, you are too. Not yet revealed. It will be on the last day. What, right now we see everybody's warts and pimples and spots and wrinkles and all that kind of stuff. We're well acquainted with how frail we are. And the day is coming when it will all be uh, passed and will be glorified in Christ notice how john puts it this is so practical in that in verse 17 he says because as he is so also are we in this world how is christ right now an accepted son of god with nothing to prove to his father he sat down at the father's right hand he's finished his work his father said welcome back son you're here forever as he is, so also are we in this world. That's the way you want to live. Accepted, nothing to prove sons and daughters of God. It's a powerful, stunning. Okay. This verse, uh, What's that, Pat? A difficult verse in terms of what God was pointing at, in terms of perfect love. To uh, in terms
1: of our relationship with him, because he also tells us, they're not just flesh uh, so it has to be only Christ in terms
0: of how God is looking at us people he sees Christ in us yes yes so you're dealing with your fears where does this verse direct you perfect love the perfect of love of Christ so the more I know I'm loved If this verse is working, what's going to decrease? My fears. The greater my fears in all likelihood, the less my experience of the love of Christ. They really are proportionate. It's very practical stuff.
4: And also, Mike, I think it gives us a freedom to know that God's love is not conditional. I grew up in, in a church where... I could lose my salvation every other day. And that was really frightening because it was conditional. Yeah. I and, and it took me a long time as an adult to quite understand that I could not save myself. That this this was a gift from God. This was complete like like it, it's here it's completed. There, what is missing? I love yes. what said. What is missing in Christ's work that I have to do
0: something? Yes, I
4: do something or I do whatever I do, like Paul said, because of the great law that he loved me with. Yes, the, and perfect as I am, and as perfect I love other people, it's true because of Christ's work.
0: Yes. And the reason it's so hard to believe in the unconditional love of God is the covenant of works still echoes in our conscience. We still think we have to prove to God we're lovable. And when Christ looks at you, he doesn't love you on the strength of your performance. He loves you on the strength of keeping his promise to his father. I will redeem a people for you, Father. I will do, it's a covenant this is what we call the covenant of redemption, that the Father and the Son enter into an agreement to rescue a people from Adam's world race for Jesus to enjoy as brothers and sisters forever. Jesus will save you to the end because he's made a promise to his Father. He will do it. That's sort of what's underlying this. Nate, yes? This is an excellent example
2: of how uh, one word in English has two meanings that we differentiate when it talks about hearing God because... We're always supposed to fear God in the, in the uh, way that we have awe and respect for who he is, but we're not supposed to fear judgment when it comes, or that the coming judgment, we're not supposed to be afraid of that, so fear yes or no, It is yes, you, yes you fear God, no absolutely we don't fear the judgment that's coming for the very first. Good.
0: And, I
4: learned the gospel Portuguese, and we have two very different words.
0: For those two things, Yeah. And the truth is, the more the Spirit works in you, the fear of the Lord that Nate's talking about, reverence, awe, a sense of, you're so wonderful and loving, I couldn't dream of of hurting you. The more you have that, the greater your confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence ebbs and flows. The Westminster Confession talks about the assurance of our salvation being very elastic. Okay. Okay. Let's see, so we were just doing glorified in solidarity with, no, uh, confident in the day of judgment, and we better stop there because now we're going to get into the, um, the effect of solidarity with Christ on being reconciled to one another. I know this maybe feels a little painstaking to you. I, I, I'm, I'm laying layer upon layer to get ultimately to the point where we are theologically framing how we love people different from us and the need to be right with people different from us—that's where we're going. So, okay, let's uh, let me pray for you all. Lord, I thank you for the spiritual thirst you put in my brothers and sisters. I thank you that they know the riches of Christ. They trust those riches by the grace you've worked in them, saving faith. Continue to give us. Hope, confidence, the fear of the Lord in our sanctification. As we gather now in this next hour and a half, send your spirit to equip us to delight in you, to bring you glory and honor, all that we are, all that we have. Fulfill and awaken in us a desire for more of the presence of God and His glory. We pray this stranger would be welcomed. We pray modeled among us would be peace with each other because of peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen.